right? So as I said, we're going to be looking at the, at the last plague. And, you know, all of the plagues uh, make God uh, look rather gruesome, okay? But if you, were to, if you were to compare all of the plagues, you know, a gnat, right, it, uh, you know, is, is not near as bad as a, as a dead child. Uh, this, this last plague is the most gruesome of all. And this is where God kills all the firstborn children. And, you know, too often I feel like this plague or stories like this, uh, they, they don't hit us like, we, we, uh, like it should. Uh, we have been desensitized because, this, you know, this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Uh, we've heard it in, in Sunday school when we were kids, and we, we know it. You know, we know this story inside and out. You know, this, this sort of story is like uh, the story of Noah and the ark, <laughs> Right? And whenever I read Noah and the Ark from, my, uh, from children's books to my children, I'm always just shocked by the desensit- desensitization that goes on in those children's stories. Because when you're reading the story of the Ark, what, what does it focus on? Well, it focuses on the happy giraffe, you know, just, just prancing along on the boat, just having a good old time with his friend Elephant. But what, is it, what does it miss, right? All of the people drowning underneath the water. Okay? We're totally desensitized. And this is, this is a similar story. This is where God, uh, in his wrath, kills all of the firstborn in Egypt. And the question becomes, why this plague? Right? What is the logic and the meaning of this plague? Is there meaning to it? Uh, is there meaning to this plague? You know, uh, a lot of times my children are destructive. Um, yes, just yesterday we went to this place in Little Rock called the Wonder Place, and there's all these big blocks that you can build. And my oldest, she builds this big tower, and any time that my oldest builds a tower, my, my middle one comes over and knocks it down and laughs, just maniacally, you know. And Anya goes, no, you know, and I said, Eliza, why did you do that? And she has no reason, because she likes to do it, right? <laughs> Kids like to destroy things. There's no logic, there's no meaning, there's no coherence to it at all. You know, when I was a kid, uh, when I was like in elementary school, I was playing in my friend's backyard, and on the other side of the fence was a pool. And on our side of the fence was big clods of dirt, right? And so we had this bright idea, let's put those clods of dirt inside the pool. And if anybody was there, like an adult or something that was supervising us, there should have been an adult, they would have said, now Lucas, why would you do that? And I would have said, I don't know, you know? <laughs> what am I doing with my life, you know? And so we threw, the, we threw the dirt in the pool, and, then, and the neighbor runs out of his house yelling at us. <laughs> he goes, I know your parents, I'm going to call, you know, and he actually ended up uh, did doing that. He did do that, and we got in big trouble. But, you know, kids do these violent things, and there's no logic and there's no reason to it. And, you know, all too often in the, in the Bible, the God of the Old Testament uh, is seen as this vindictive God who does violent acts, not because of any logic uh, inherent uh, in these acts, but because he can. Because you made him mad, right? Because he wants to display his great destructive power. And we have to think about this. As bad as Pharaoh was for enslaving the, the people of Israel, is God worse off, right? Pharaoh kills all these children at the beginning of Exodus, and now God's killing children. Is there any logic to this work that he is doing? Uh, you know, th- there was an early church heretic named Marcion, and he refused to accept the God of Israel because he said, the God of Israel is not my God. He's not the God of Jesus Christ. Jesus died, right, for his enemies. God destroys his enemies. And we have to ask these questions. What type of God do we worship? Is this a God of incoherence? Is this a God 
uh, without any logic reasoning to his, to his actions? Okay. Is our God vindictive and violent? And uh, the answer that I want to give this morning is uh, absolutely not. God is not violent. He's not malevolent. Uh, he's not random. He's not illogical. And in fact, not only does God not want to enact this plague, okay, he provides a way of protection. You know, whenever I discipline my kids, I don't enjoy doing it. And I always provide a way out. And this is the type of God that we worship. He doesn't enjoy violence, right? He doesn't take, uh, uh, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't enjoy destroying sinners. And yet when his hand is forced, he has to. All right, so we're going to be uh, sort of asking this, this question and looking at three points this morning. So the first one is, is there logic to the plague? There is. So we're going to look at the first one, which is the logic of the plague. Second of all, we're going to look at the protection from the plague. And then last of all, we're going to look at the calling of the plague. So the logic, the protection, and the calling of the plague. So first of all, let's just, let's just go ahead and look at the logic of this last plague. As Brent said last week, there does seem to be uh, an, an, a, a, a logic to the plagues, an order to the plagues. It's almost as if the ten plagues themselves are a decreation. God is tearing apart the world of Egypt. Um, and, it, and it ends with the death of the firstborn. And what we have to understand here is that this is a logical climax to the other nine plagues. This tenth plague is a logical, uh, meaningful climax to the, the other ninth plagues. And the question becomes, how is, how is it logical? How is it meaningful? Well, we have to understand how uh, the ancient world understood the firstborn. Um, in, the, in the ancient world, the firstborn son was not simply the favorite, okay, <laughs> or, or the one who got the most attention. You know, Anya is our firstborn, and by far she got the most attention, okay. <laughs> and the reason was because when we had Anya, we had no clue what we were doing, right. And this was just totally new. We had Facebook videos posted every single day. You know, oh man, she, she made a goo goo gaga. Oh man, did she say dada? No, she was just drooling, you know. She was, she, every, every single bit of her day got our attention, right? By, by the last, by our third kid, it's like, no big deal. You know, she's crying a little bit. She's okay. She's spit up. No big deal. We can wait until tomorrow to bathe her. You know, that sort of thing. Um, right? The firstborn, our firstborn, we do bathe our child. Um, our firstborn got lots more attention, okay? But in the ancient world, the firstborn didn't simply get a higher degree of attention, um, the, the firstborn inherited the family legacy. Uh, the firstborn inherited the family name. Uh, the way that fathers in the ancient Near Eastern world passed on their memory and their legacy was by giving their blessing to their firstborn. That was how they passed on their name. And this is something we don't understand nowadays uh, in our selfie age. You know, you, you can get an Instagram account and people will remember you for years on end even if they don't want to right? Your face is plastered on the internet, right? Well, for fathers of, of the ancient world, that is not how it worked. And so if they wanted to pass on their name and their memory, if they wanted their name to be remembered, they would pass on their blessing to the firstborn child. And um, uh, th that was just how it worked, you know? And, 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 and a way to think about this, you know, there is something comparable today. Uh, if you pass on a family business, you know, if, if a business that you work on is family-owned, the, the parents need to think about who they're going to pass on their business to, right? And if they can't pass on their business, well, then that's just a tragedy, okay? Well, it was, it was the same with the firstborn, but just the entire legacy, the entire namesake 
of the family. And if you didn't pass on your uh, blessing, your name, your legacy to your child, then you were lost in the pages of history. And this is, this is a theme that runs all throughout the Old Testament. You can think of sons in Genesis always fought for the blessing of the father. Think about Jacob and Esau. What was so awful about Jacob? Well, he tricked. <laughs> he tricked his father into giving him the blessing. He dressed up like Esau. He, he put a bunch of fur on him. And he, took, he received the blessing. He received the legacy of the firstborn. And this is why there was such a, a, a conflict between the two. Okay, but now let's go a level deeper. What happens if your firstborn dies? Right? What happens if your firstborn dies? This is just the way it worked. You could say, well, put it on to the secondborn. But no, this is just the way that the culture worked. If the firstborn dies, your name is forgotten. Your legacy is forgotten. Uh, it's, it, it, it not only signaled the death of a child, it signaled your own death. Your name would be lost in the pages of history. And so what is God threatening here in this last plague? Well, not simply the death of a child. That's bad enough. But what he's saying is, Pharaoh, your name will be lost in the pages of history. And in fact, if you look at the, uh, the book of Exodus, his name is nowhere to be found. Okay? Your name will be lost in the pages of history and all the rest of those in Egypt. I am going to wipe you out. Okay? I'm going to wipe you out from the pages of of history. And this is the way that the climax works. It goes from frogs <laughs> to gnats to darkness to a natural ending point. Pharaoh, if you don't repent, you, yourself, you will end. I will wipe you out. I, I, and this is what Brent said last week. This was such a great insight. Why ten plagues? <laughs> Why not just one of them? <laughs> God could have snapped his, well, he's, he wants Pharaoh to repent. He wants Pharaoh to repent, and Pharaoh is not repenting. And so finally God says in the last plague, he says, fine, I'm going to wipe you out from the pages of history. You will not be remembered. Okay, and this is how we have to understand God's wrath and God's anger. You know, there are days when I'm grumpy, okay? <laughs> and, and, I, and I might snap at my kids or something, but that's something I need to repent of, Right? That, that's something that I, I need to say, you know what, that, that's, a, that's a temper. God doesn't have a temper. The way that the, the, Bible display, or the Bible characterizes God's anger and God's wrath is slow but sure. Right? Slow but sure. God gives you a long rope. But eventually, eventually, you will end up under his wrath. And it's only right for God to do this, you know. And just to give one more illustration here. You know, it, it's wrong for me to yell at my kids, right? Because that's selfish. But let's take another, another situation. What if, what if a, a thief comes up, pushes my wife down, and takes her purse? And I say, Lucas, do not get angry right now. Bless you. Go and be blessed. I hope you enjoy the makeup, you know. No, 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 no. It's wrong for me not to get angry and knock that guy out. Tackle him, take, you know. It, it would be wrong for me not to get angry. And this is the way that God's anger and wrath works. It would be wrong for him not to, at some point, say, Pharaoh, if you will not repent, I'm going to end it for you. I'm, I'm going to erase you from the pages of history. And this is the only right thing for me to do. If you repent, but you're not repenting. And therefore, 
my wrath is going to come down hard. And it's going to be terrifying. <laughs> right? that, that's what God's wrath is. It's terrifying. Okay? But it's good. It's good. It's slow. And it's good. Uh, this is the way that Gerhardus Voss, a uh, theologian, says, uh, this is how he describes God's wrath. He says that God's wrath is not a sudden surge like ours, but it's a rational impulse. It's a rational impulse of God's will toward the unrepentant. That's how God's wrath is. And so the, the, the plagues come to this climax where, they, where God says, finally, I will wipe you out. I will wipe you out. So that's, that's our first point there. That's the logic of the plague. There is meaning to this plague. Okay? And God has, has, has come to the point where he will now enact his wrath. But even then, even then, God provides a protection. And that's our, that's our second point. God pr- provides a protection from his wrath. And uh, let, let's see what that protection is. Let's go ahead and go to um, chapter 12, verse 1. And here's what the protection is. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to the father's uh, houses, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can, uh, each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you will take it from the sheep or from the goats. And so what's the instruction? Take this lamb according to each household, or if a household is too small, right, you can combine households. Take this lamb, it has to be one without blemish, okay, so it's got to be one of the best from your, from your flocks, okay, and what, and what do you do with this lamb, All right, verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Now, I don't know, where are they keeping this lamb? <laughs> so from the 10th day until the 14th, so that's almost a full week, you got to keep this lamb somewhere, who knows, you know, I don't know where, where you're supposed to keep it, but um, that's, just, that's just me wondering. Um, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Okay, so what are they supposed to do with this lamb? Now notice, it's not just that they have to kill it. They have to kill it until the 14th day, and at twilight, all of Israel is commanded to kill these lambs at the same time. Now you just have to imagine uh, how gruesome that would be. It's not like um, it's not like take the lamb and when it's when it's dinner time, you know, uh, just delicately kill the lamb and then you know chop it up and put it on the on the grill. No, no, no. Everybody is going to slay the lambs at the same time. So that's going to be a very gruesome sight. All of Israel, all at the same time. Uh, is going to kill the lambs, and then they're supposed to eat the lamb whole. Okay, and, wh- and what's, what's the result? Well, look here at verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you. So, so the result here is that God's plague will not fall upon Egypt. When he sends his angel of judgment, anyone with the blood of the lamb will be passed over. Okay? And, and just, just a couple of sides here before we, we move on. This is the context of the Passover meal. And it's also the context of the Lord's Supper. 
The Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of this Passover meal. And, um, <clears throat> but, but each year, Israel uh, did the same thing each year annually. To, they went together at twilight, and they slayed these lambs, and then they ate these lambs. Okay? Um, but also, this is the context of the Levitical sacrifices. Uh, what, what were the sacrifices for? That, well, they were to protect the people. Every time an Israelite sinned, they would bring an animal to the priest. He would kill the animal, and then the priest would take the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the altar. And, and what the blood did was it protected, uh, it protected this Israelite who had sinned. Okay? It had the same effect as, as the blood on the door. And, 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 and not only would they do that, they would also eat the, those sacrifices as well. And, and you say, why are they eating these animals? They're, they're killing them as sacrifices. Well, uh, what, what, does eating, uh, what does eating symbolize? It symbolizes fellowship. Right? When, when families come together, the, the most logical thing that they do is they eat together. It's fellowship. And what does the blood do? Well, it creates fellowship. It covers the sin. It takes away the offense. And it creates fellowship between God and man. Okay? Now, what, what all of this means here is that the lamb uh, functioned as a substitute. The lamb functioned as a substitute. Rather than the firstborn son dying, and the legacy uh, of the father and the family along with him, the, ma- uh, the male lamb dies in their stead. It's offered instead of the firstborn son. It's given as a substitute. It, div- it diverts God's holy wrath. That's what, this, that's what this sacrifice does. Now, now at first glance, you might say, man, that's, that's just so gruesome, you know? Why do we have to sacrifice? Why does it have to be so bloody? Why does it have to be so violent? Right, and there, ha- there have been those throughout uh, all of history who have said, well, why, why does God refi- require a substitute in the first place? Why can't, he just, why can't he just withhold his wrath? Okay? <clears throat> and and here's, here's what God w- would simply say. He would say, you do not understand the offense sin. The reason I need a substitute, the reason I need blood to cover your sin, is because as as Anselm says, you have not realized how great a burden sin is. Okay? And you have to realize, God's wrath is coming because of Pharaoh's unrepentant, murderous rebellion. Right? It's not like Pharaoh was walking in the desert one day and hit, stubbed his toe on a pyramid, right? And he says, ah, you know, <laughs> oh, God, forgive me. Yeah. We do that. We do that sort of thing. No, this is, this is Pharaoh who is unrepentant, rebellious, murderous, hates God, and God says, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon you. And God says, it's not, it's not enough to just simply say, I'm sorry. <laughs> and we, we all know this in- instinctively. When, when a hardened criminal, when a hardened murderer uh, is caught and put to trial, it's not enough for him to go up into the stand and say, my bad, guys. You know? <laughs> I know I killed those 10 people. My bad. I was having a bad day. You know? No, what, what do we want? We want justice. We want punishment to be enacted. And that's a good desire. And we, and we, you know, uh, uh, married people, we all understand this, right? Whenever you get into a fight with your wife, dudes, right, what do you want to do immediately? <laughs> Whether for good or bad. <laughs> you want to get in your car, drive down to Kroger, <laughs> and what do you want to go buy? <laughs> a bouquet of flowers, right? <laughs> and I've done this on several occasions. And, and what's the bouquet of flowers? It's an apology, but it's an apology enacted through a sacrifice. It's a peace offering. Right? See, Lucas, you are going off into the weeds here. <laughs> but but here, here's the thing. Every, I, I'm not kidding you. 
Every single time I go to Kroger, and it's always Kroger, I don't know why. I go to Kroger, I get a bouquet of flowers. Some dude comes up to me and nudges me and goes, what'd you do to get in the doghouse? <laughs> okay. You know? Now, that's, that's just, that's horrible, you know? Who are these guys, you know, that walking around Kroger? But, but it's, it's, it's logical, right? If I offend my wife, I could just say, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. Or I could go do something about it. I could get an offering. Something that, that states uh, my, my, uh, my apology. Well, this is what, uh, this is what an offering is. And it, and it covers your sin. Okay? And uh, uh, so that, that's what the sacrifice does. And another thing we have to understand here is that, you know, who, who is the one who offered a way out? All right, it wasn't like God was crossing his arms and saying, there is nothing that you can do, you know. And Moses says, let's all kill a bunch of lambs, you know. No, God says, if you kill a lamb, I will have mercy, right? The lamb is God's justice, but it's also his mercy, right? It's, it's where God says, I will, I'll, I will leave you a, a, a way out of this punishment, and here, here's the lamb. And when we get to the New Testament, the apostles take this whole narrative, this whole paradigm of sacrifice and sin and blood and covering, and they apply it to Christ. So for instance, when Jesus comes up on the scene, John the Baptist says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, here's our Passover Lamb. He has been slain, therefore let us keep the feast. Right? And what's that feast? Well, it's not the Passover anymore. It's the Lord's Supper. And for whom does he offer himself? Well, not for himself. He, he offers himself for us. And who are we? We're the collective pharaohs who have rebelled against God, and who have kindled God's just and holy wrath. And Jesus takes his blood, and he puts it on the wood. Not of a doorway, but of the cross. And, and God's judgment passes over. This is God's justice, but it's also his mercy, in which he passes over our sin. So that's the protection from the plague. Let's, let's look, look real uh, quickly at, at uh, the last point here, the calling of the plague. God in his mercy has exempted Israel from this last plague through this lamb. Okay? Now just very quickly, I just want to look here in, in, in uh, uh, chapter 13, because this is a theme that runs all throughout the Old Testament. But he, here's the therefore of this protection. Here's what God says in, in chapter 13. In verse 1, he says this, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. What, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Okay? <clears throat> now, what, what, is God, what is God saying here? Consecrate simply means set apart. Gift to me. Make holy unto me. I own the firstborn, in other words. And why does God own the firstborn? Well, because God paid a price. Right? And what, what was that price? Well, it wasn't gold, it wasn't silver, it wasn't money. It was the price of the blood of the lamb. Okay? And what is God saying to Israel? Okay? And keep in mind, the firstborn is the legacy of the entire family. Well, God is saying to Israel, I have purchased you. I've purchased you from the bonds of slavery. Not just simply your firstborn son, but your entire legacy. And therefore, consecrate to me you, <laughs> you as a nation, you are now mine. And in essence, what God is saying is you used to belong to Pharaoh. 
But now I have provided this lamb. And the lamb died and paid a price. And therefore, Pharaoh is no longer your master. I am your master. I have purchased you from the bonds of slavery, and I have made you my own. I have taken away your offense. I have discharged your debt. I have paid the price, and therefore consecrate yourself to me. I am your master. No longer is Pharaoh your, your master. That's what, that's what God is saying to Israel. And of course, if we take this motif in the New Testament, you know, so for instance, Revelation 5 says that Jesus Christ has ransomed a people with his own blood. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you have been bought with a price. Okay? What the New Testament says about us is that Christ himself is our ransom payment. And he has purchased us Not with gold or silver or with money, but he's purchased us with the blood that he spilled upon the cross. Now, what 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 does that mean? Well, what Paul's going to do is he's going to take Romans 6. In Romans 6, he says, you used to belong to sin, to do its bidding. And and sin used to, to be your taskmaster and tell you what to do. But now I have defeated the Pharaoh of sin and I paid the slave price to purchase you as my own. And now I, Jesus Christ, am your master. And I am a master who is not like Pharaoh, right? Uh, My burden is light. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. But you now belong to me. Your entire body, your entire life, your entire soul now belongs to me. Dedicated, consecrated to me. And what that means is that if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ has spilled his blood to purchase you for himself. And that means you don't Call the shots in your life. That means you don't make choices for yourself. You now make choices for Christ. Okay? And just as, as, as we end here, I just want to <clears throat> read this quote from Martin Luther, because I think this is probably, this is from his uh, small catechism, one of the mo- richer, richer uh, uh, texts that he's written. But he's writing on the second article of the Creed, and that's about Jesus Christ. And he, and he asks, what does this mean? And he says, I believe that Jesus Christ has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious precious blood. Why? That I may be his. Christ owns you now. (laughs) That's that's the whole takeaway. He owns you. You are his slaves. (laughs) And he's a good master. His burden is light. But now your life no longer belongs to yourself. And uh, that, that's what it means to be a Christian. And maybe if you're investigating Christianity and you're saying, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that Christ takes away all of your sin debt. You're totally forgiven. But in addition to that, it means that he owns you for his own purposes. For his own holy, set-apart, consecrated purposes. So, let's pray. <clears throat> Father... <clears throat> We thank you uh, that, that you have given us a lamb. Uh, that you have given us a price, a ransom payment uh, to purchase us from the power of sin, uh, to rescue us from your own wrath. That you have gone to the cross to make us your own. 
Help us to see ourselves as consecrated people, as holy people, as people who have been purchased and won and redeemed uh, by Christ himself. And uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.